Hi, I'm Peggy. And I'm Dave. And this is Amped. Hey, Dave, how are you today? I'm not sure, Peggy. I'm really <laughs> not sure. We are now on the sixth try of trying to get this podcast done with a myriad of different technical difficulties that have prevented us from recording before yes, this. Yes, it definitely feels like the stars are are aligned against us right now, but we will persevere and we will get this sucker out. <laughs> yes, in 2023. Yes, we. I believe, I believe. <laughs> well, what do you want to talk about, Peggy? So I actually, so today's podcast, thankfully, is, is going to be relatively short, which is good only because... Um, it, it shortens the length of time that technical difficulties can cut us off. So, um, but I, and it's going to be more conversational, I think, but I went to the doctor a few weeks ago and um, I wanted to talk about that experience and some epiphany that I had when I was there and, and get your take on it. Sure. All right. You ready? Fire away. All right. So I had to go, um, out to California, and as luck would have it, four days before my trip, I got an ear infection. Knew it was an ear infection, had to go to the doctor, and of course, it was a Friday, um, so I had to go after hours, so I didn't get to see my doctor, but I did indeed see an MD. Okay? With me so far? I'm with you. This is riveting, and it gets better. I know, I know, because I've heard the beginning of the story five other times. Five other times. Well, <laughs> six if you if you count the time that I sent you the message of what we should talk about. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's true. So I I went to the doctor, and as par for the course, right? Even though I'm there for my ear, I have to go into the whole leg thing, right? Because it's there, and even though it's in my record, and this is the doctor that I always go to, the doctor's practice had to have the conversation of what happened, and yada, yada, yada. In the meantime, yeah. I'm just like, just of course. give me the ear meds. Because it's, it's so integrally linked to the ear problems you're experiencing. Exactly. So I wasn't feeling well. I was already frustrated, but I had a smile on my face and I was trying to be pleasant because, you know, she had the eardrops and the antibiotics in her hand. Um, and then she looks at me and she's like, you got around really well on that, pointing to my prosthesis. And I'm like, well, thanks, but it's it's been 15 years. I'm like, but thank you. And she's like, I have a friend who has one, but she's an ACA. Are you? And I'm thinking, ACA, ACA. Aka. Hmm. And I said, an Aka? And she said, yes, an Aka. They cut her up here. And she pointed to above her knee. Right. Aka. And I said, oh, an above knee amputee. She's like, oh, an Aka. Okay. And I'm thinking, Aka. She, so she actually said Aka, not AK or AKA. She actually thought that it was like a word, right? War- warning so sign number said, one. Exactly. Um, and then she proceeds to tell me um, she has a really cool leg because hers can plug in. And I said, well, they make they make really nice microprocessor knees. Is it working for her? And she said, well, it's not just the knee. It's the whole right. thing. And I said, do you mean the socket? Does the socket <laughs> plug in? And at the time, I'm going – does the socket plug in? What could this chick be yeah, wearing? Yeah, you think you've missed, you've missed and, some and major technological I know. development. <laughs> and why don't I know about this? And she looks at me straight-faced, talking about her friend who's right. an ACA, and says, what's a socket? Mm-hmm. 
And I, you know, Dave. Tell me, Peggy. Tell I, me what you're thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking I, I, I became instantly like frustrated and furious at the system because immediately my mind went to this individual's notes count are, are weighted heavier by insurance companies when determining devices than my prosthetist who actually knows what a socket is. But because she has an MD behind her name, she somehow is the expert in prosthetic devices in the eyes of the insurance company. And it is so frustrating that somebody like that can have so much power over a device that will impact my entire life. Even though I was there for my ears, I totally realized that I'm projecting and that that's not the situation, but it kind of, it got me thinking. Clearly, as it should have. Yes. And yes. consider that this doctor, based on her relationship with her friend, probably knows more about prosthetics than many other doctors. She at least knows, exactly. she at least knows that exactly. you know there are Akkas out there. Exactly. Oh my! Oh my lord! Just give me the antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> and some morphine while you're at it. Exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, I mean, this is something I used to historically experience this um, when I owned my facility from the other side, where we were always communicating with physicians' offices, trying to get um, trying to get adequate documentation from them regarding what uh, the patient's condition was and why they needed what they needed. And this was in a, it was in a different era where the approach that you took with doctors could be very different than it is today. From a documentation standpoint, Medicare has become much more rigorous in policing this type of stuff. But one of... Right. So just, you know... For reference, you're talking about it used to be that the the prosthetist basically could write up the notes and say exactly put these right. In your file, I mean, we correct? used to we used to write letters yeah. to physicians okay. saying, "Here are our suggested findings. Um, we have put them in in a letter form for you, and if you agree with these findings, please feel free to integrate them into your notes." And right, ninety nine percent of the time, the physician would cut and paste our findings into their notes. And back in 2001, 2002, A, this was a common practice in O&P, and B, it was not being regulated in any real way by Medicare or any other payer. Um, And frankly, that way made sense because the physician had no expertise in prosthetics, nine times out of 10, more than nine times out of 10. And it ensured Not everybody knows an ACA, right? You know, in all seriousness, I think doctors do about uh, a four-week rotation that covers all orthotics and prosthetics. It might be six weeks in medical school. But, you know, out of seven years of medical school, you know, an infinitely small percentage of their time is being spent on prosthetics. And if you end up, obviously, playing in a space that isn't that, you'll never see it again. Until you happen to have an amputee in your patient population. So why should they know? Um, You know, they shouldn't. And the old approach, whether you, whether you think in retrospect, it was good or not, it actually, when, you know, it, it permitted the person who was the subject matter in prosthetics 
to communicate what was needed and why. And a physician, if they had specific questions as they're reading these detailed notes and the suggestions that they put in their own records, could very easily call and ask questions and validate why or why not. And there were rare occasions where prostitutes came to us and said, I don't think that this is right. And then we would have to work it out with the physician. But, um, you know, what you experienced today is no different than what we experienced then. And I was dealing with, you know, you're dealing with a general practitioner. We used to deal with doctors from Sloan Kettering and Hospital for Special Surgery here in New York, you know, really world-class institutions with physicians who are world-class physicians. And the vast majority of them didn't fundamentally know anything about prosthetics, nor did they care to. It's so frustrating. You know, I understand why the system changed and it, it goes into, you know, the, the over-prescribing and overuse of high-end microprocessor, very expensive devices that, you know, may not have been the most appropriate when they first came out for, for every patient and they were being fit on just about everybody, right? So Medicare really clamped down on this and I get that, but there's got to be there's got to be some sort of middle ground dave that that we have well, to and settle I think, down yeah, at, at i'll go point. back one step i think there there was some over prescribing in certain situations i don't think it was serial i don't think it was um, i don't think every prosthetist was putting microprocessor knees on every patient regardless yeah no no i just oh, and i, I, I just want to be didn't clear mean about to infer this that. Absolutely. i Thank know you. that yeah. you know some prosthetists listen to this podcast and we don't want to we don't want there to be an insinuation that this was you know, just serial abuse by, by the profession. But I can tell you from having sat in rooms with uh, people from Medicare, medical directors from the DME Max, um, they, you know, back, back in the day, I, I remember talking to representatives of manufacturers who were furious when they would go to an amputee event and see a bilateral above knee amputee or as your doctor would say, a bilateral ACA, or a double ACA, a double ACA, yeah. Or BACA, or BACA. You would see people with two above knee prostheses in a wheelchair, and it was clear that this user was, just based on their overall physical condition, was using these prostheses primarily to transfer in and out of the chair. It wasn't that they were just in the chair for a little while, but they walked a fair amount also. Um, And Medicare saw that, and was furious. I, I heard a medical director once say, you've got to explain to me how someone with congestive heart failure in a nursing home is getting a microprocessor knee when they can't even ambulate. That was how they viewed this. And so the, the perception of abuse, um, and there were clearly some instances where the devices weren't prescribed appropriately, um, you know, created a backlash. And the backlash was in the form of Medicare, uh, really bolstering in Medicare would say, or the DME Max specifically would probably say what they were actually doing was just reaffirming what had always been the rule or enforcing what had always been the rule, but never really um, policed very carefully was the primacy of the doctor in the doctor prosthetist relationship. But that then created an obvious problem for both prosthetists and patients, which was now you have all of these doctors who have very little competence in prosthetics and their notes are now primary. And they get no, they literally get no benefit from a 
clinical standpoint. The doctor gets, there's no upside for a doctor to now spend half an hour with an amputee who he or she understands nothing about providing extensive documentation about that patient. For the average physician, um, you know, an orthopod or a general practitioner, these are not billable events for them. And they're sitting there saying, why do I have to document this? I don't make any money. I lose money when that patient comes in. And like it or not, that is part of the calculation when you're seen by healthcare providers. Absolutely. And it's just, it's so frustrating, Dave, as a patient being stuck in the middle. Um, you know, it, it, and obviously this isn't the, the individual that I go to when, when I need prosthetic prescriptions and things like that. But it was just such a resounding example of, of sometimes the, the well-intended ignorance that, that, you know, if you're dealing in the realm yeah. of prosthetics and that you I, encounter I think, in the you medical know, there's, field. There's one other factor. Some, some people who are careful listeners of this podcast might remember back in February when we did a podcast that was discussing a new law that was passed as part of President Trump's tax bill. It was just an add-on, actually, to the spending bill, actually, I think, that said uh, for the first time that the prosthetist notes are officially considered part of the medical record for uh, medical necessity and reasonableness purposes. And so the very astute listener might say, but wait a second, Peggy, yeah, get it that you had that problem, but didn't this law solve that? And I think the answer is maybe. I mean, <laughs> it's it's sort of hard to tell because it all really depends on how Medicare's contractors actually interpret and implement um that that legal language into how they review claims. It doesn't say, the law clearly does not say that the prosthetist notes are a substitute for the physician's clinical judgment and documentation. It just says that their notes are also part of the record. And as we said at that time, we thought, we expected that the primary benefit that would provide uh, patients and prosthetists would be that in areas where the doctor's documentation might be vague, that the prosthetist notes could provide clarity and likely would be enough where historically they could be completely disregarded. And it might help in some instances uh, with, with some types of appeals. But it's not at all clear that the change in the law has fundamentally um, improved the situation that you experienced or indirectly that you experienced. And um, in fact, Peggy, this is a topic I'm going to be speaking at next week at one of the one of the larger uh, or it's actually the biggest convention in orthotics and prosthetics um, that's hosted by AOPA. One of the it's one of the five ONP Alliance members. We did a podcast on the ONP Alliance as well, called Alphabet Soup, a few years ago, which you can look up if you're interested in that. But I'm going to be speaking about what is the effect of the patient notes law. Uh, sorry, the physician's notes law. Sorry, the prosthetist notes law. This is what happens when you record the same podcast 14 times. Um, but you know, sneak preview, it's not entirely clear, you know, the law, the language of the law is good. What's actually happening on the ground is much less clear. And I'll be honest. I mean, I speak to, speak to prostitutes on a regular basis and I haven't heard anything suggesting that this law has fundamentally or even moderately shifted the dynamics of the claims process and the position it puts prosthetists and patients in, in a fundamentally different way. And 
I know that the guidance that that I've given uh, to, to prostitutes who ask me for my input on this um, is I, I think a best practice is still you've got to get corroborating information from your physician. You need your physician to document with some degree of specificity what's going on. Because if you don't have that, it's unlikely that that uh, that the notes the prostitutes provides will be enough um, on their own. Sorry, I'm hitting something on my microphone by accident. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Oh, but, that's um, all right. We're going to record right on through it because I'm not doing this again. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, it's wow. – you've identified sort of one of the threats – you've experienced one of the real problematic issues in modern prosthetic slash claims uh, in the that space. It's – it's not uh, it's not a great situation to be in f- on any side. If you're Medicare, you're trying to protect against abuse. If you're a prosthetist, you want to be considered the the subject matter expert, which you are. If you're a physician, you don't want to be caught in the middle of any of this because, frankly, it's not really your fight. Um, and the solution that's out there today, I guess, is better than what it was, but it doesn't fundamentally get to the nut of the problem, which is who's the subject matter expert and you know who can and should we rely upon while still having appropriate safeguards and the balance that that's been struck now i think is better than the historical one but it is still not ideal i think it's still on a continuum and i think we can agree that it's going to be a yeah, to be I, determined I right. where it kind of settles uh, out in the future and it'll probably keep changing and in the meantime, patients are, are going to continue to be stuck in the middle. And, and, you know, I mean, honestly, Dave, I, I was thinking about that today. You know, I was at, as I was at the grocery store and like probably the 18 billionth person in my life stopped me to talk to me about my leg, which is fine. You know, you become like a, yes. a, an ambassador educator when you live with limb loss and have it visible. And you think that that the medical community, I, I guess that's what took me back, is that that I expected, I expect that with the general public, I expect that with kids, I expect that sometimes with parents, I didn't really expect it with a medical professional, especially a, a general practitioner. Right. And Not interestingly, like an if you had gone to an orthopod, like an orthopedic surgeon, you might very body. well have, you know. Not that you would go to them for an ear problem, but if you'd had the same discussion, it's likely that they would have known something more. If you had gone, if you had gone to a vascular surgeon, you almost definitely would have um, exactly. would have been speaking to someone with some knowledge about it. And it, ironically, if you'd gone to what's called a PMNR, physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor, and these are people who actually specialize in you know comprehensive rehabilitation um, as their area of expertise. Um, Those are people who, especially over the last five years, have become increasingly knowledgeable about amputees because prosthetists have increasingly routed their patients to them to get the appropriate clinical documentation from a physician. Um, So especially in more urban areas where PM&Rs tend to be T- tend to exist in much greater numbers. There are not a lot of them in rural areas, 
but I can tell you in New York and Boston and major cities, um, this is, you know, there are a lot of them around and there's kind of this weird little cottage industry now where, you know, amputees go specifically to PM&Rs to get their examinations and their prescriptions because those doctors, this is what they do. They do the kinds of evaluations that Medicare requires and they bill for them. Yeah, it's definitely a niche um, specialty, and I think it definitely is on the rise. And as paperwork becomes more complex, and patients find themselves kind of well, put and in the I'll middle tell more, you, I I'll share one one story about this, just so you can sort of see the, the internal insanity of all of this. Um, I have a friend who used to run a, a practice and uh, an O and P practice, and patient goes to a regular physician to get the prescription and gets the prescription for a new prosthesis. However, this practice being reasonably sophisticated recognized that the prescribing physician's notes weren't good and this person was an expert. So they sent this patient to a PM&R physician that they had a relationship with. And when the claim got submitted, Medicare denied it. And so the practice manager calls the DME Mac and says, why was the claim denied? And they said, well, it was denied because the prescribing physician isn't the same physician who um, wrote the notes to which this person said, well, tell me where that's a requirement. It's not a requirement. Look, find something anywhere in the local coverage determination or in your Medicare policy manual that tells you that the prescribing physician has to be the same person as the person who uh, documents the patient's clinical condition. And the ultimate answer after lots of back and forth and ratcheting it up to a supervisor was, you're right, you are allowed to do that. And then they said, but this isn't right. We now have to pay for that second appointment. It costs us more. To which my friend said, that's not my problem. You're the one requiring us to go and get this specific level of documentation. So we're sending them to the physician capable of doing that. So that's the insanity of this in the end. Sure wow. is, but <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll continue to monitor going forward. What's the impact of this it's crazy uh, the, Dave. Uh, earlier this year, the prosthetist notes law. Uh, if I have any uh, brilliant revelations between now and next week, when I speak on this, um, I will let everyone know in a future podcast, assuming we can get it off the ground technologically. Just keep the faith, Peggy. Always keep the faith. Yeah. I believe in us. Yeah. Well, listen, praise Always. the Lord. We got through it, Peggy. <laughs> yes. And, and I'm looking forward to hearing it, Dave. Yeah. Well, so. listen, praise the Lord. Thank goodness. Oh my goodness. This, this one has not been, it's always great talking to you, Dave. Absolutely. I'm and really, the other really thing we want to just apologize for quickly is we know that like we have been less right regular now. with We're our podcasts over the it. last month or so um, than right. we normally are. We really try to stay on a once per week drumbeat, uh, but just our respective travel schedules have been nuts the last month and a half or so. So uh, it's just been very hard logistically to find time where we can both sit down, um, prepare the outlines that we do for this that turn into the show notes, 
um, and give it the the thoughtful attention that they deserve. So uh, we would rather put out high-end content a little less frequently when that happens than just try to record something off the top of our heads that isn't all that interesting. But we'll be back on a regular basis moving forward. Cool. It was awesome talking exactly. to you, Peggy. Well said, Dave. All right. We'll talk soon. I'm going to play our outro music now. Absolutely. All right. All right. Thanks. Here it goes. Take care. It's great Bye. talking to you, too. I won't hear it, but I'll trust you. Bye. Now you can say amped, Peggy.